Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. We'll discuss the recent special meeting of the European Council last week in Brussels, where they addressed issues related to Ukraine and migration. After that, Max and I will sit down for a talk with Jan-Philippe Albrecht, who is the co-president of the Heinrich Boll Foundation and was formerly a member of the European Parliament and Minister for Energy Transition, Agriculture, Environment, Nature and Digitalization of the State of Schleswig-Holstein. Our discussion with Jan-Philippe will cover the rising tensions within the EU over Ukraine and Russia, Germany's traffic light coalition and much more. Today, our first topic is going to be the European Council meeting that took place last week in Brussels. The reason we think this is important is for context. These European Council meetings are the expression of the political direction and the will of European leaders, and they reflect some of the most pressing concerns and the issues that is on their mind. So, Max, walk us through what they discussed specifically when it comes to Ukraine, since Zelensky, I believe, was in Brussels. Yeah, Zelensky had, I think, a fairly dramatic European tour. It's only the second time he's left the country. He, of course, came to Washington late last year. He went to London first and then a quick swing through Paris where he had dinner with Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, and then to Brussels for a meeting at the European Council at the EU. I think it's interesting that he didn't go to NATO headquarters. Uh, I think that's partly a signaling uh, on the part of NATO that, look, NATO's not party to this war and this doesn't involve, this conflict doesn't involve NATO, not trying to play into Russian messaging. I think it also reflects Ukraine's uh, sincere desire to join the European Union. Uh, in many respects, the the war that we have today is a result of you, the Ukrainians wanting to be part of Europe and the European project. It was the rejection of an economic association agreement with the EU in 2013, which first prompted Ukrainians to take to the streets uh, and occupy the Maidan Square, which led to the downfall of the Yanukovych government, which then helped get us where we are today. So it's this is about Ukraine wanting to be part of Europe. And Zelensky went with a very strong message saying, look, you know, we want to start talks to join the European Union this year, the Ascension talks. So Ukraine has been granted candidate status last year, but now it wants to take that next step and to be officially recognized as a, a country that is moving toward Ascension of the European Union. The EU is, I think, rightly saying, like, we kind of have to crawl before we start running here. And there's a lot of steps that Ukraine has to take. A country joining the European Union is not like joining NATO. It's a bit like if Mexico were to try to join the United States. There's all these rules, laws that have to be adopted, have to be, be shifted. The other major issue, though, is not just that we don't know what Ukraine's borders are, but before the Eastern European countries joined the European Union, the EU went through like a decade of treaty reform, of changing its rules and procedures to incorporate new Eastern European countries that were not at the economic level of the Western European countries, changing its voting rules and procedures. There's a lot of sort of really boring bureaucratic steps that have to be taken, and no one is really talking about the treaty reform aspect. In fact, the Eastern European states have said, no, 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 we're not going to do treaty reform. It. Yeah, because they would have to compromise. But there's, I don't see any way Ukraine gets in unless there's some reform to how the EU operates. Sure. And there's also been a lot of growing pain on the side of the EU with, I guess, now 27 members. So there's understandably a lot of fear that reopening the treaties is going to be a free for all and reintroducing certain things in there. 
that's one aspect of it. There's also obviously political sensitivities on other candidate countries that have been waiting for a long time, especially in the Western Balkans. What are the prospects for this in coming years without treaty reform, since you don't foresee it? Is it more along the lines of what um, French President Macron proposed of having a looser affiliation before they can move to accession? And would that be okay with Ukraine? I think treaty reform has to be put on the table. So I think what I hope starts to happen is the, qu the, the question starts being raised, look, if Ukraine is actually, if we're going to accelerate their membership, we also have to accelerate conversation about treaty reform. And remember, uh, the then Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi raised this in a speech, I believe, to the European Parliament, as did Emmanuel Macron. So it's been put out there and then rejected. And to me, there, no matter what, there has to be treaty reform before Ukraine enters, because how are you going to do the common agricultural policy with a country that has a huge agricultural sector, which then gets a huge amount of subsidies? It's going to totally alter the internal makings of the European budget. Guess who's going to actually lose from that? It's not really just the French. It's also Eastern European farmers. And then the Eastern Europeans, you know, there's lots of concerns about rule of law corruption, issues of in Hungary and Poland. And so these issues will sort of have to be ad addressed before I think there's any chance of, of Ukraine membership. And that directly relates to the Western Balkans. Well, Ukraine wants to sort of decouple from the Western Balkans, which makes sense. On the other hand, part of the reason why the Western Balkans are stuck is not necessarily because of what's happening in the Western Balkans, but because of the lack of action in Brussels. And action on Brussels uh, for treaty reform would lead to progress in, in both areas. We're actually going to have a report on EU enlargement. This is a critical topic, a critical issue, uh, one that's really important in the United States. You know, while the U.S. leverage here is not high, on the other hand, the United States can play a role in this. It's of critical importance to the strategic stability of, of the Western Balkans, of Ukraine, uh, has real geopolitical implications. And so there's things the United States can do, at least diplomatically, to say not just that we support EU enlargement, but also support EU reform, which is going to have to go hand in hand with it. At least that's, that's my view. That's great news. I look forward to discussing the report when it comes out. Let's move a little bit towards some of Zelensky's other concerns. We've talked about tanks quite a bit. It seems to me the ask is moving towards fighter jets. Can you talk to us a little bit about what he was um, asking on yeah. that front? Well, you know, in his trip to the UK, there's uh, an amazing visual with him and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak wearing basically fighter helmets. Uh, and when you know politicians put on helmets... Uh, it, sometimes bad things can happen. Ask but, Michael Dukakis. But once, once you know, the prime minister of the UK puts on a, a helmet of a fighter jet, it seems pretty clear that the UK is inclined to provide Ukraine with fighter jets. Look, I think this is a, a case where NATO allies, the United States, UK, others need to sort of just recognize that we are going to be providing fighter jets. And instead of doing this whole torturous rigmarole over months and then providing all sorts of different types of tanks as we just did, I think really figuring out what is the right fighter jet for Ukraine and what we don't want to have happen is Ukraine to get three or four different types of fighter jets that all operate differently. You, Ukrainian forces would have to be trained on how to maintain them, different parts and components. And that's a huge nightmare, huge logistical headache. And the thing about fighter jets is they're incredibly expensive. And so it's also going to be expensive for our 
allies of Ukraine to provide fighter jets. So they need to do so in a really thoughtful manner. We should start doing that planning and thinking now so we can get them to Ukraine quickly and also in an organized fashion. The one other thing I would say, fighter jets are often seen as an offensive weapon, as a weapon system where, oh, you know, you're trying to invade a country, take territory, they clear airspace. But in this case, we haven't seen the Russians actually use their fighter jets very often, their air force, because there's so much air and missile defense. And actually, fighter jets are really being used in this war more in a defensive way, that if there's a breakthrough, then you can have your fighter jets come to the uh, defense. And they can also be used for air defense as well, given their uh, precision guided munitions. So this is, I think, a critical capability. Ukraine's going to need it no matter what, even if the war were to end tomorrow to deter Russia. So we should just think through how to get fighter jets to Ukraine in a really thoughtful, deliberate manner. I feel like the defensive offensive distinction is an important one. Do you think that will be the key to winning this argument among transatlantic leaders? I don't know. I think this is more about cost, actually. I think that this the fighter jets are expensive. The quantities that countries have can be more limited. There's a really good Rusi report that looked at the, the Saab Gripen fighter jet, which is actually probably the, the one that would be most suitable for Ukraine's needs. It's very deployable. The costs of running it are quite low. You can disperse it. The disadvantage is there's not as many Saab Gripens while there are a ton of F-16s. We have huge F-16 inventories in U.S. stocks as well as in European stocks. There's still an ongoing production line. So the ability to provide Ukraine with F-16s, while maybe not as suitable, there's a certain amount of mass or a certain amount of quantity that we have that might make the most sense. But that's still expensive. That's still a cost money to maintain. And that has, that has to be budgeted. That has to come out of security assistance pots, which may be uh, increasingly limited. I think this is going to occupy the political debate for some time. Great. So lots to look forward to. But the European Council wasn't just about Ukraine and fighter jets. It was also about the issue of migration, which is, as we know, an issue that is really politically important and radioactive uh, within Europe. What actually happened uh, in this migration discussion that really occupied a lot of the European leaders' time? This is years in the making, and I think will be with us for another however many years. I think it's important to distinguish between the aspiration piece, so what they're hoping to do in the long term, and the practice. The aspiration for European leaders really is a comprehensive approach to migration challenges, so securing external borders, but also improving the way asylum seekers and refugees are managed inside the European Union and how they are resettled across all of the EU, including respect for international law and human rights. Uh, they passed a new pact on migration and asylum in 2020. I think this is crucial when we see all the escalating and overlapping crises in the neighborhood of the European Union from climate to conflict to economic hardships. Um, we also need to recognize the efforts that have already been made. But then the practice is, and what we saw in this European Council, is in effect moving more and more towards a hard line focus on external borders and closing entry points into the European Union and focusing on returns of asylum seekers who are considered not deserving of refugee status inside the European Union. Just to unpack that for a second. So it's basically like frontline states like Italy, especially with the new Prime Minister Maloney, feel that the burden of migration to the EU is really put on their shoulders, right? They are the ones that in Italy and Greece where you're getting migrants that that come to Europe and the first point of entry are these frontline European states. 
And then what they're seeing is a lack of solidarity from the rest of Europe that is not willing to take these uh, asylum seekers or refugees, either to hold them for processing, uh, and that the burden really falls on states like Italy, Hungary, Spain, Greece, all along European borders. Yes, that's also due to a rule, what we call the Dublin system, which is countries of arrival are supposed to be the ones that process refugees and asylum seekers. This was agreed before we saw the much larger arrivals of 2015 and 2016. At that point, the system kind of broke down because that's when Greece, Italy, all the border countries received a lot more asylum seekers that they could process at the time. And the political aspect of it is other EU member states who were further afield said we we don't want to resettle. We don't want an apportionment of uh, asylum seekers across the EU. I think this is a discourse that for some U.S. audiences is familiar, is we should secure the border so that we don't send anybody in, in other states. And some countries like Austria, Hungary, um, Estonia, Denmark, even Greece have been advocating for a long time to really focus on the external border. I think what's important in the conversation is not just that the EU is focusing and conclusions from this European Council, as well as focusing on just border infrastructure. It's also a reshaping of the relationship with third countries. And by third countries, I mean countries of origin for asylum seekers or transit countries. So when we think about Libya or Mali or overall the North Africa, parts of the Levant, the focus on those relationships is really through security and migration when really there's a whole host of other issues that should come up in the relationship. And that has the potential to warp those other goals from development, like supporting problematic governments. And this just keeps coming up. We did a report in 2018 about the securitization of the migration approach and the implications that that has on the EU's relationship with those countries at a time when all of us are talking about different parts of Africa growing economically, demographically, we're focusing on that one little piece that is really important politically for European leaders, but makes us have a really myopic approach to the entire continent. Right. It's after 2015, one of the ways that the Europe helped, quote unquote, solve the migration crisis for them was to essentially pay Turkey to keep migrants in Turkey. And it paid them a lot of money and essentially bought off the Turks because they couldn't really figure out how to uh, create a system inside of Europe. So what did the European Council agree? Was there anything really significant that came out of this uh, summit? Yes. One thing that really stuck with me is the focus on funding that is likely to be unlocked for reinforcing border protection, for infrastructure, surveillance, uh, equipment, more Resources devoted to Frontex, which is um, the European agency that focuses on border protection, which has been a somewhat controversial actor over recent years because of allegations of pushbacks of migrants. Essentially, that's when migrants that are trying to come across a border or at sea, and then they're essentially pushed back, physically pushed back into their the country that they're coming from or, or out of the EU space. And that has been seen as somewhat of a seen as a human rights violation and the EU not really living up to its values. Frontex denies these. It's also a very complicated position for the organization itself because it has grown massively since 2015. It has received large amounts of funding and has been required to staff up by hundreds and hundreds of people. So there's there's a bureaucratic challenge there. I think the council is looking at enhancing this border force and it, that, that'll be really difficult. I think one piece that the council leaves a little vague 
is what does equipment and border infrastructure mean? I think some states like Austria, for example, will welcome this as a way for the EU to fund fences and potentially um, like hard border infrastructure. The president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said that that's not quite it. Feels to me like they're leaving the interpretation a little bit vague so that this funding can serve a lot of different purposes. But that also means it'll be really important to track how these resources are spent and whether that's in accordance with the treaties. And there was a lot of back and forth over whether the EU is actually funding the construction of walls. Maybe you could sort of unpack that a little bit. Well, I think that's that's a tricky question because there's something that in the construction of quote-unquote a border wall goes against the spirit of an open Europe. The commission in implementing this request from the council might find a way to get around that to let member states build the actual border fence or wall, whatever we want to call it, and fund the provision of equipment that helps build this. It all kind of washes out to be the same principle, though, is that they're contributing to border infrastructure that prevents people from coming in. My major takeaway, I think, from the European Council migration debate and the migration discussion overall is that I think it really demonstrates that the EU is sort of willing to do whatever it takes to stand up and protect its union. And I don't say that in this case in a positive way, that I think the reaction to 2015 was in the contribution that migration made to populism within Europe and the explosion, that European leaders draw a direct line. And so what we've seen is that European leaders have moved, especially even you know on the left, to move toward a very hawkish position against migration because they don't want it to threaten their their politics, the, the European Union. And so they're willing to kind of stand for things that they 10 years ago would have been sort of anathema to quote unquote European values because migration is seen as a political threat to the European Union. Oh, 100 percent. And what's interesting is at the same time, we keep paying lip service to root causes of migration because we have to. But the focus on security and migration in third countries makes it hard to really focus on quote unquote root causes that really need development solutions and not more security and assistance to security forces or border forces in some of those countries. One last point is that when the EU responds to a crisis, the cliche is that the EU becomes stronger and that its institutions adapt. And I think that's exactly what we've seen in response to the migration crisis with the creation of Frontex, a border force that's supposed to be 10,000 strong. And, you know, the Europeans often say the EU can't buy weapons. The EU doesn't do defense. Well, Frontex is buying guns. Frontex is buying vehicles and I think helicopters and boats and all these things that look like a border force that look akin to having a defense force or a military. That's not to say that that's what this is, but that the EU can find a way to to strengthen itself in response to a crisis. And it actually, I think, oh, really opens the, the legal question of all these claims that the EU couldn't actually purchase any procurement systems or any weapon systems, which oftentimes is thrown back at me. It's not actually true. <laughs> I, if you go back and look at the treaties, it's not actually in there. It's actually just a restraint that the EU puts on itself through an over-interpretation of EU treaties, which I think is part of the reason why uh, having a clear EU treaty would be in everyone's interest. Well, on the topic of migration, there was obviously uh, a massive earthquake in Turkey with 
tens of thousands of people that have been killed, wounded, and have been left homeless. Utter tragedy. Uh, it's just something I think we're going to dive into in future episodes to really talk about how this is going to impact Turkey and its potential elections in May. But we'll get to that in future episodes. But we'll now turn to our interview with Jan-Philippe Albert. We are now joined by Jan-Philippe Albrecht, who is the co-president of the Heinrich Böll Foundation, a former MEP and minister in the state of Schleswig-Holstein. So we're going to start the conversation today with a broader review of the transatlantic relationship from the German perspective. It's been in the news a lot these days with European reactions to the U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So we'd love to hear from you from the German perspective. What's been the core concern? around the IRA and potential areas of opportunity, because we'd also like to highlight the, the good story coming out of this. I think one of the most important words is to say uh, Europe has been a little bit surprised by uh, the way how the IRA was set up and that it uh, like really became reality in that extent. And so there was a bit of uh, whining and annoyment in the beginning, which I would say has quickly evaded uh, the scene again now. Although, of course, uh, there is a lot of concerns uh, over there in Europe, um, but many of these concerns touch on, of course, I would say like domestic European challenges and problems still in place, uh, which is on the one hand, the necessity to uh, rearrange subsidies to uh, green investments in Europe too. I mean, Europe has had investments and, and good measures by the European Commission tackled in the last years, but now we have to come forward with more and that's like uh, on our side, on the European side to deliver on that. And it's not so easy also to do it, I have to say, uh, as there are some constraints also in EU law uh, for, for getting uh, ahead. And also on the other, other side, there are struggles inside the European Union because, uh, of course, there are structural differences between the member states. And when France and Germany, as uh, the ministers have been here in D.C. last week, were really into uh, like advocating for Europe as a partner and for also investments uh, on the European side. It wasn't that visible, maybe, uh, that, of course, uh, smaller partners in Europe are very concerned about inequalities somehow and competitiveness problems, which have to be solved inside Europe, too. But now people learn from the IRA and see the opportunities and maybe also get some inspiration. Just on that, you know, one of the things that has struck me about the European reaction is that it seemed to be a reaction really driven by uh, the market orientation of the European Union. Oftentimes, we in America think of Europe and the EU as this great socialist enterprise, when in fact, it's sort of creating a, a single market that is a free market. And so the discussion of the IRA subsidies, which they are, are indeed subsidies, but on the other hand, they're also incentives, and incentives to, yes, distorting the market, but distorting the market away from uh, dirty fuels, dirty technology toward to incentivize consumers to move in a cleaner direction. And it struck me that one of the 
biggest advocates then of European fiscal union were actually Americans like John Kerry and Catherine Tai, our, our trade representative. And so I'm curious where you've come down on this need for Europe to maybe emulate some of the quote unquote subsidies or incentives that uh, the United States is providing, perhaps that is, is needed on a pan-European scale as well. Absolutely. And I really think that it's needed that uh, Europeans look at this as a really huge and good step uh, provided by the Biden administration, as it is seen across the board also here in the US. And it's really great that it is accomplished. I have to say there is also a lot of learnings in the US throughout the last years, of course, and the new arrangement of really focusing on green transition, really focusing also on a new contract also of in investments, but also social and ecological measures. That's something which no one really would have expected the years before uh, in the US, I have to say. And maybe that was also the thing which Europeans haven't seen as clearly uh, in the beginning when this popped up. And now I have to say the Europeans really can see and have to see how they can react in a similar way and how they can learn from this too. For example, bringing together the unions and the environment groups and uh, enterprises uh, willing to invest and really look how uh, what what is needed to bring that forward. But there are structural problems, as I indicated, in the European Union, and you are hinting at that, which we need to solve for that. Uh, if you look at the IRA, it's not only uh, incentives and, uh, and investments, it's also the income side, uh, which plays a role. I mean, it's not only new money put on the table, but it's uh, a restructuring of tax uh, systems. It's done by uh, Treasury uh, in, in on this basis also. And uh, that should remind the Europeans of the fact that there are still no legal base for an EU-wide taxation scheme for own uh, taxation of the EU, which would make the EU able to act in the same manner as the Biden administration has done it here in the US. We now have to take that debate in the EU. We can't just like go on by building up new funds based on member states' money and the willingness of all of them to uh, to go ahead on each uh, step. Why we see that the flea powers are really drawing on, on the com- commission's proposal it's uh, namely on the Green Industrial uh, Act. It seems to me, though, the appetite for common taxation is not there, especially on in places like Germany. Do you feel like the decisions that were made last week at the European Council, for example, are enough to get the bloc started on the EU response or EU match to the IRA? Or it's just not going to get to a very productive point until we have... More. It's clear that it's not sufficient. I mean, that really has to be said. But on the other side, it's also like not that we really have to say there's no way that this can end up in a good solution, but they really have to come forward in a more detailed manner on how uh, we will build on the existing measures in the future. You can't just do one little bit of easing with the competition rules or subsidy rules in the European Union and and a little bit of more budget uh, for common investments. You need to really make sure that the European Union is able to fund transformation, not only in Europe, but also in partnering countries around the world. We really have to look at the new partnerships on production and energy consumption as we want to to like diversify as we want to get independent of actors like China after the experience with Russia. And that needs really the capacity of the European Union to act in a more unified way 
and upfront as the US did right now uh, with uh, real investment packages. And I don't think we are fit ready for that now. Can I maybe ask for you to maybe sort of assess the last year in terms of how Europe and, and specifically Germany has responded to the energy crisis. Uh, you know, right now we're sort of looking forward at, at the difficulties of, of cooperating when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act and getting our green industries to sort of work together. But, you know, Europe has gone through a, a massive test in trying to decouple from Russian energy. Germany's been at the forefront of that. I think it was just a year ago that Germany was insisting that fossil gas from Russia was, you know, should count as, uh, as green under the EU taxonomy. With Robert Habeck, a green minister in charge of the economy and environment, what steps has Germany taken? How has Germany been able to really decouple from, from Russian natural gas? Do you think that this has really set back the green transition or has it accelerated it? Lots of questions. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's hard It's hard to answer, I have to say, as this year, of course, has been an absolutely unique experience um, and a turnaround. Also, as you indicate, uh, there was a heavy mistake of the German government throughout decades to think that dependency on Russian gas would uh, come with now price, price tag. And that was even despite heavy warnings, not only from the US, but from all European partners. The European Parliament even had a majority vote uh, warning Germany of going down this road, and they just ignored it. So it was important that we had that shift immediately. And I think it was uh, good that the new government was able to do that shift uh, so quickly, and that uh, Robert Habeck really was in the position to say, okay, let's now really work along a line of uh, several measures to get diversified energy uh, uh, supply from other sources. And I think it's some kind of a miracle that he managed together with his staff by working like 48 hours a day uh, to do that. And and they managed. Uh, and it's great. But of course, it does still come with a lot of challenges. I mean, the high amount of gas supply we still uh, are dependent on is a general problem. And decarbonization is still in the air, of course. We still have to invest a lot of money also in new technologies driving the way for, for decarbonization rather than on like LNG terminals, of course. Although we all know that there are still bridges needed in order to get there, there might be also uh, some parts stalling our plans, yes, uh, with this correction. And it, that's also a price we are paying in addition to what we have seen as Europeans with this war. Now we have to learn from this experience for the future. In a similar way, in terms of taking a few steps forward and then a few steps back. I'd like to take us toward Ukraine, which is deeply related, obviously, to this energy conversation we're having, and Germany's approach towards the war, towards providing armaments to Ukraine, but also in the context of European discussions around Ukraine. What's been your assessment of the response from the government, but also its approach to a European position and a transatlantic position towards the war? First of all, I think it's really a great success that not only the partners uh, of the Western Hemisphere together with other partners in the world really had so uniquely acted immediately towards uh, the aggression of the Russian Federation and uh, that we also gained the support of a huge majority in the United Nations General Assembly. I think that's really an important sign. 
following from that, uh, that now, of course, with some kind of delay always, that is other side of the coin, but we, we were able to deliver uh, these weapons to the Ukrainians in order for them to at least hold the line as no one has expected, especially in spring and summer last year. But of course, it comes together with uh, this Zeitung vendor debate on the new way how we see foreign and security, po security policies and especially the responsibilities uh, in NATO and in the European Union for the Eastern uh, security partnership with our partners there being threatened, uh, not only since February, but since long time by uh, Russian aggression. To be honest, German public still is learning to follow up to this. I mean, it was an announcement by the chancellor driven by facts and acknowledgement of the situation. But still, Germany has to learn fully what was expected, maybe even since end of the 90s, since 9-11, I don't know, from Germany, a leadership role in security in Europe and in the world. And that's a tough learning period for Germany. I can say that like with the Green Party, and everyone is so surprised why the German Green Party is that hawkish, but with the Green Party, I experienced that debate far earlier than maybe others in Germany as we were uh, like evaluating our role in the uh, Green government times when we had to agree to sending jets to uh, Yugoslavia or sending troops to Afghanistan. And uh, we were uh, forced to rearrange our foreign and security policies uh, away from our like pacifist roots maybe to concepts like responsibility to protect and to elaborate a value-based and rules order-based foreign policy. And I think that made us able to react quickly also as the Green Party in Germany to this moment. And I'm happy that we were able to do it. A question off of that uh, about tanks. Foreign Minister Baerbach, also uh, of the Green Party, I think was very clear in an interview she did with the French foreign minister that she would support the provision of, of tanks and providing export licenses so that German uh, tanks could be sent to Ukraine. That was before Schultz made the announcement. What has been the interaction within the coalition over how to conduct foreign policy, where Foreign Minister Baerbach and the Greens have had a really a uh, strong values-based position, very strong in support of Ukraine, oftentimes that, that maybe rubs against some of the caution from the, the chancellery. How has that interaction been? Is everyone on the same page or, you know, behind closed doors or, or people pushing in, in different directions? First of all, I think it's also a general matter of debate that we may be just proud of the fact that democracy delivers for very large variety of perspectives and positions and allows for that debate even inside governments. And that's our strength vis-a-vis -vis autocrats uh, everywhere else uh, and uh, and maybe also some autocratic forces inside our own countries. And we have to revalue that and we have to not think that this is always a weakness or weakening our position. Although, of course, we need to come to common positions and conclusions. And my impression is that we were managing to come to results while it was needed to exchange positions and to also do that uh, in a certain range of public debate also because it's not only a government taking decisions here and then the public is just listening to the result. It's a public self-assessment of where are we, what are, what 
are we wanting to do? And I think that's taking place in the US in the same way. And, and it's good also because we learned from the past that just simple decisions from one day to the other might not be the best way to act in those situations. Annalena Baerbock was clear about the fact that if we wait until the tanks are too late, then that might be not be appropriate reaction. I find this idea you mentioned the Greens having to pretty early on rethink their foreign policy approach. It seems to me they have been very forward leaning on a lot of these issues. Their platform was very pro-EU going into the last election as well. And overall, this is a coalition that on paper is very pro-EU as well. But we've seen reticence towards some of the bolder EU initiatives that are being floated either out of Brussels or out of Paris um, and some other capitals recently. I'm curious for your assessment of this coalition's priorities on EU action and integration, some of the concerns that they have, what we're likely to see in the next, let's say, year of the coalition. Are they going to keep giving a little bit or hold steady on things like fiscal union? That is a good question. And I'm very concerned about that, uh, I have to say, because this coalition, of course, is a coalition which is pro-European and which wants to deliver for progress solutions on a pan-European uh, effort. But at the same time, we see member states Germany in the European Union, which had been for decades before on the breaks of European integration after Joschka Fischer ended his term as foreign minister, really advocating deeper integration. That was a setback to European integration. Um, I don't think that everything Angela Merkel did was wrong, but on EU integration, she did a mistake of being so slowed down and not answering to Macron's proposals and not pushing for, for treaty reforms, which are really unnecessary in some certain uh, areas. For this legislature of this uh, traffic light government in Germany, I don't see that uh, treaty changes are on the table. That will be for the next EU commission, hopefully. Uh, I don't think that uh, next commission will get around it. But uh, of course, there are things on the table where Germany now needs to take leadership together with other partners in the European Union at the end. Because like they never really did before. In, in German government, government officials are less used to bringing forward constructive ideas to the EU policy branch. That's the task of the commission. And the task of Germany is to slow down the commission. That was the, the uh, division of tasks. And we have to change that because the commission alone won't be able to, to get the things through, especially with actors like Hungary or uh, also s smaller states who really are concerned about their own interest. From a U.S. perspective, that's really important to understand because we talk all the time about the Franco-German engine and how that makes the EU move forward on integration. I think the U.S. has expectations of a united Europe, etc. But understanding where those breaks and potential breaks are versus commission and government in Germany is really important. Yeah, no, it, it, it seems that, you know, Schultz ran uh, as a sort of the continuity candidate with Angela Merkel. And I think there was hope and expectation, at least from, from many in Brussels, that when it came to the EU, it would be a bit different. You know, Schultz was a major advocate of the next generation EU. This is the EU borrowing for the first time 800 billion euros. Yet that dynamic hasn't really played out. You saw France in, an oct I think it was in October, canceling a Franco-German summit. We're accustomed here in the United States to perhaps sometimes French overreaction to things. We, we experienced AUKUS the year before. 
But this was an opportunity for France and Germany to get on the same page, and that summit was was delayed. I mean, is this also a byproduct of having to be in government with the FDP, the Free Democrats that are much more libertarian? Christian Lindner is the head of the finance ministry, very concerned about potential fiscal transfers and anything that looks like a fiscal union. Is this just the, the byproduct of having you know, a complicated, as you mentioned, traffic-like coalition between the SDP, the Greens, and, and FDP? Certainly it is. I mean, the FDP, I have to say, is not the kind of liberals which I would like to see uh, when it comes to, like, European integration and any other, like, really incentivization of, of uh, cooperation but rather backwards oriented in some of these points, which I, I pity a lot. But what I really see worrying is that the SPD and Chancellor Scholz uh, are giving way to that behavior too often. Maybe because of a lack of inspiration, a lack of idea where European integration might head to in certain areas. Like just thinking about the question on how to also build up taxation and social security and investment schemes on EU level, which might really be beneficial for the market and would really foster growth and innovation in a way that we also overcome the very heavily old structured national schemes we have. And I'd like to see that changing in behavior. And that would really make a huge difference if um, there would be signs of positive outlooks for, for those developments. And I, I very much hope that we will be able to deliver for that in the following year. But you, you have to see it is about this year to deliver for this government also in this uh, respect because we have a European election next year and we have a federal election the year after already. So um, it's it's needed now to, to get foot on it. Well, speaking of elections, there was just one in Berlin <laughs> <laughs> very recently, which is a rerun of Absolutely. one that was Yeah, we're canceled. repeating the elections yes. now. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason I want to talk about this is because I'm, I'm curious how... These results, which the city of the Christian Democratic Union, which is now in the opposition, Angela Merkel's party, topped the polls at around 28%. I believe the SPD and the Greens are now tied around 18%, which is the opposite of the results in 2021. Do you think that will have an impact on the camaraderie in the current coalition over the next year when they have all of these results that they'd like to deliver on? I, I try to report as objectively as possible on it. I think it has consequences, these elections. First of all, because it's been a very long time that the Conservatives, so the CDU, really had any shot in Berlin. It's a new thing that they are there, uh, that bold. They managed to mobilize uh, voters, maybe not voting before, uh, especially people low income who have needs also maybe here and there, which haven't been respected as uh, before. That has to be an analyzed for, uh, from all the parties maybe. But uh, it also has consequences because the SPD uh, really almost like lost uh, a second place to the Greens. Uh, now they have to still count in some letterbox votes coming 
coming and maybe the 100 roads will change which they have in advance. But anyway, it has already an effect. Uh, I don't know if they will be able to continue SPD-led government. Of course, they will uh, try to negotiate it. But also it has effects as we were talking about the FTP because uh, they didn't manage to get into parliament again. So maybe also a more like even more radicalized position of them on certain issues uh, might come up. So governing in Germany uh, is uh, at the moment a constant struggle as these election results vary a lot. So with the, the the political dynamic, when you sort of look ahead to 2024, I mean, it seems as if each of the three parties in the coalition in some ways can't afford to leave this coalition, that this coalition, there's been some talk of it, whether it will will crack apart because of the, the ideological differences and some of the differences that you hit on. But it seems like they're also fundamentally tied together in really needing this government to succeed for each party's own individual political interests. Do you think that's the case? That is true. I mean, you have to also see that Olaf Scholz's uh, win of the chancellery was more or less expected to be the only way the SPD might survive still. It was that far. And they did. They managed that. But that's why they can't afford this government to break up because they are so much tied to the success of uh, their chancellor. The same somehow uh, counts for the FDP, who is out of a lot of state governments and even parliaments, as I said. They were beaten a lot for crashing the coalition talks with the CDU and the Greens in 2017, allowing another grand coalition to do nothing and so on. So that was a heavy burden on them. And so they play with it a lot, but I don't think they can allow to to go out in the end. And for the Greens, it's clear they have made such a campaign on being a responsible partner and being a responsible caretaker of government affairs that especially in these crisis times and looking at the constant challenges being green challenges, they they wouldn't really take it easy to to leave the government. I don't think they, they had any idea of doing that. Uh, so they will stick together. They will have these campaigns running in parallel. I think the, the really interesting part is if they will be able to uh, materialize the uh, spirit which bound them together uh, when they were uh, drawing this coalition treaty in the beginning and to come back to its substance, which, of course, was lacking behind now as we were in this crisis moment. And many things had to wait, you know, I mean, government, administration, digitization, planning's been uh, like quicker also on energy transition, but also uh, many ideas of reforming society uh, with certain liberal ideas also immigration for example as a very important point for germany to uh, get enough uh, qualified stuff and and or jobs and that's uh, really things this government now has to deliver on in order to at least then also in the end uh, have something to present well crises really have a way of reshuffling the priorities but sometimes pressing for reforms that we thought were impossible before. Last question, at least for me, on this issue, I'd like to step back since you were a member of the European Parliament and they've had to deal with a crisis of their own recently around the issue of Qatargate, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes uh, saying Qatargate. We talked about this on our inaugural podcast episode, but it's an ongoing problem. 
I'm curious, since you also dealt with issues of justice and home affairs, how you view the impact of this scandal, which seems to just turn up new things every week. What does that say about the state of the institutions being responsible actors and their reputation? First of all, I think that uh, it's a particular problem of the institution of the European Parliament rather than of all EU institutions. Uh, just to say, because the European institutions, uh, especially the Commission, they really did a, a big deal of trying to secure against uh, corruption and really being the independent bodies uh, which they wanted to always be. While the European Parliament is an institution which is rather self-organized and which comes from a time, uh, I mean, it's directly elected since 79, where in the years after it was like more or less a talking body, an advisory body to the commission, and things were not that important. And that still is uh, in the perception of the European Parliament and the European public that this body might not be that important uh, as also it has been here in the US. Sometimes I even wonder that maybe some US partners might consider the European Parliament more important than the EU public does, including like lobbyists and so on, because for the European public, uh, there had been a real struggle to explain why uh, EU decision making is now more important than the old style member states decision making process. And it is, of course, we all know. I mean, there can't be uh, so many more important decision bodies than the European Parliament in the world, you know, so and they have to take that serious and I didn't do it sufficiently. That's obvious. On the other side shows, of course, uh, a situation which is kind of dramatic because we are under attack as democracies from the inside and from the outside. And we have to be aware of that. Uh, there had been these cases of the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly where members of, I think, even the German Bundestag were bribed by Azerbaijani government and so on, or oligarchs. And that's important to really see that this is not by accident. It's intention and a deliberate attack on democracies and Europe in its like still young and vulnerable position has to be very clear on that and has to be more aware on that. And there's just one thing which I might bring into because I read this article about the mobile centers on Munich buildings uh, where all the security people from the world now with the Munich Security Conference will lock in with their mobile phones, cell phones, and it's a who are why uh, uh, sender, you know? So, I mean, uh, it, this awareness of the fact that we are also vulnerable, that we are under attack and that we have to deal with it, that still needs to be elaborated more in Europe. And it's good that there is a transatlantic debate on that. And I really would wish that uh, this would be taken uh, uh, quite serious also from both sides. Well, Jan, thank you so much for joining us. This has been, uh, I think, a really interesting and excellent conversation. And, I, you know, I think just on the last point, it's sort of an example of the maturation of the European Parliament that foreign governments and companies think it's worth influencing. And I think we'll be, be tracking and watching the European parliamentary elections next year very closely. But Jan, thanks so much for, for joining us on Europhile. That's it for today's episode. You can find links to the CSIS work referenced today in the episode description. You will also find a new report from the team here at CSIS that assesses Europe's response to the war in Ukraine one year on. 
As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. They have a new episode out on Sino-Russian military cooperation, which we encourage you to check out. Thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Cece Martinez and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.